Well, I first want to say it's a tremendous privilege just to even be here before you this morning. Uh, I come here twice a week to hear speakers, and I never envisioned myself in this position, ever. So um, I'm, I'm just a young, young punk, so to speak. So I do not belong here. So thank you for your attention. And uh, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon His throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face. With two He covered His feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Father, our righteous and everlasting King, Lord, we come before you this morning, not because we are so spiritual, but Father, because we are so needy. We bow before your exalted and mighty power and declare that you are Lord. We declare who you are. Oh Lord, that you would bestow grace upon us lowly creatures, that we might hear your word, that your means of grace would not return void, but Lord, that you would plant your word within our heart that you would sanctify us and that you would fill us with the hope of glorification that we will have that day when you conform our bodies to that like our Lord's. Oh, that you would receive all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to be looking at a pretty familiar text. I think all of us are somewhat familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Usually we hear this text and uh, the preacher will take verse 8 and preach it as sort of a clarion call, so to speak, to missionary activity. Uh, Here I am, send me. Will you go wherever the Lord will send you? Well, this morning I kind of want to challenge that way of thinking about this text. And I want to look at it in its entirety because when we look at Isaiah chapter 6 in its entirety we see a completely different message than just a missionary text. 
I believe that this text has four main sections. Uh, Verses 1 through 4 is the glory of God revealed. Verse 5 is the response of Isaiah. Verses 6 through 7 is the response to Isaiah. And finally, verse 8 is the action of Isaiah. Well, starting with the glory of God revealed, verse 1 gives us a picture of Christ the King. I believe that this is a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord, reigning upon His throne. Some people have kind of pointed out with this text that Um, Well, since this is just a vision, we can't really place too much stock into what it says or what's presented here. But I I don't buy that for a few reasons. Uh, One of those being, uh, if this is just a vision meant to just kind of be filed away as something we put in the dustbin of history, then why was it even given in the first place? And finally, once again, this is just a vision, if anything, The glory of God can only be infinitely greater than what we have portrayed here in this verse. Jesus is sitting upon his throne. This is a picture of the kingship of Christ. It is said that the train of his robe is filling the temple. This is also another picture of kingship. Uh, I think of a king who... uh, Perhaps in England, they kind of have like the long cape uh, robe looking thing. um, And it just trails behind them. And you think, wow, that is a royal person. Much in the same way, the train of his robe fills this temple. He is truly the king of kings. Verse 2 introduces us to the seraphim. We don't exactly know what a seraphim is. Uh, Some people say they're just angels. Some people say, well, there's something kind of like a cherubim. Um, But when it comes down to it, we just don't know for sure. But that doesn't matter for the interpretation of this text. Instead, I want us to look at what these seraphim are doing. If you'll notice with me, the seraphim cover their face. Well, why is that? Well, this is a common picture found throughout the Old Testament. Take Exodus chapter 3. Uh, When Moses hid his face from the glory of God, why did he hide his face? He hid his face because he was afraid. He feared what was before him. What these seraphims show us is that God in all of his glory is not to be taken lightly. Think of these seraphim for a moment. These creatures are so much more majestic than we are. I can't even imagine to begin... I can't even begin to imagine what Isaiah saw that day um, when they're flying around the king of glory. He sees God and he sees the Isaiah. In comparison, he must have felt pretty small. In verse 3, we see these two seraphim engaged in worship. Uh, They're humbly covering their faces and then they declare the perfection of his holiness three times. Holy, holy, holy. What does this mean? It means that God is completely separated from His creation. The Old Testament concept of holiness of the people of Israel had to do with a separation from the world by following the commands and the laws that God had given them. By following these statutes, they would separate themselves from the world. Their way of life would be different from everyone else around them. In this same manner, God is completely different. From all of his creation. 
For instance, we have an inkling of what love is. We love our spouses, we love our family, we love our friends. But our love at the same time is intermingled with sin and we'll never know the perfection of love within ourselves. Yet our God is love. In the same way, He is holy, infinitely holy. Imagine, if you will, a shoreless ocean uh, and you're dropped off in the center of this ocean and you could swim forever and you would never reach a shore in this ocean. You, you could begin to sink to the bottom and you will never find that bottom. In the same way is the infinite incomprehensibility of this God. Much like that scenario is incomprehensible, our God is totally incomprehensible. In verse 4, we see the power of the seraphim. Once again, we see that these creatures aren't low by any means. They're completely majestic. By the power of their voice, the foundations of the threshold shook. Personally, I can't imagine my voice having power to do much of anything. So I, I imagine a seraphim, and it terrifies me by just the power of their voice. Everything shook. As they are worshiping, their voice has the power to potentially destroy everything. Once again, Isaiah must have felt pretty small in all of this. With that in mind, let us move on to the response of Isaiah in verse 5. Isaiah has just witnessed a truly incomprehensible event. He has seen the king sitting upon his throne in all of his glory arrayed. He has seen the seraphim covering their faces humbly, crying out the perfection of God's holiness. And by seeing this, what does Isaiah do? Well, he does what any other person would do. He compares himself to what he has seen. He looks at himself. And what does he see? Well, he sees that he doesn't quite compare to what he's seen. In verse 5, Isaiah declares that calamity has fallen upon him. That is this woe that he has uh, pr uh, pronounced upon himself. Perhaps this has to do with him coming before the king of kings as he was. He declares that he is lost. A man of unclean lips dwells amongst people of unclean lips. He is undone. There are a few different ways in which people have looked at this text. Some claim that Isaiah is merely a backslidden sinner who has seen the glory of God and is brought to repentance. Others claim that Isaiah is not truly of God, and this is his initial recognition of his sinfulness and his need for repentance. Ultimately, it's the same thing. When the believer repents, he sees who God is, and he renews his repentance and follows the Lord. When an unbeliever sees the glory of the Lord, he realizes he's a sinner and he follows the Lord. So really, it doesn't play too much into the interpretation of this text. There's a recognition of who God is, and then there's a clear recognition of who we are. So Isaiah has seen himself for who he truly is. And with this confession, he has within his heart a fertile ground, so to speak. He is ready for repentance. And now we see the response to Isaiah. The seraphim comes with a hot coal and touches it to Isaiah's lips. 
And through this uh, symbolism comes a purging of sin. And so there's a lot going on in this passage. First, the coal is placed upon his lips. This is in response to him claiming that he is a man of unclean lips. Uh, the imagery of unclean lips is, is prevalent all throughout Scripture. Uh, I think of Romans chapter 3 where we see how the wickedness of man uh, through his speech and through his tongue and his lips are wicked and unclean. And it also says that the sinfulness of man's mouth is from his heart. The Scriptures tell us from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. From this it is clear that Isaiah needed a heart change. And God acting through the seraphim was more than happy to purge the repentant sinner's heart. At this point Isaiah has seen God for who he is. He has seen himself for who he truly is. And because of this recognition of his sinfulness and need for change, his sin was purged through the burning coal. Now Isaiah hears a voice. And this is where we see the action of Isaiah. In verse 8, he is asked by the Lord, Who will I send? Standing renewed and standing before God, he says, Here I am. Send me. From this point, the Lord commissions Isaiah and gives him his task. So what's the big picture of all of this? What does all this mean? This text paints for us a very clear picture of repentance and obedience in a Christian life. We have Isaiah. He's confronted with the glory of God. Because he sees God for who he is, Isaiah begins to look within himself. He sees that he is not so great. He sees that he is not a great man. He sees the perfection of this holy king sitting upon his throne. He sees the majestic seraphim humbly worshiping this king. And then he sees himself, a man of unclean lips. A sinner. He calls out against his sinful condition. And God has mercy. His sins are purged. And in right standing with God. What does this lead to? He hears a voice. Calling out. Who shall I send? And he obeys. Now with all of that. I want to kind of switch gears. And look at how this applies to us today. We can look at these Old Testament texts and we can completely forget about application, but this text is so full of life application for us today. The first thing I want to discuss is what is our view of God? The first four verses of this text paint a beautiful, majestic picture of our Lord. A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about us is what comes into your mind when you think about God. From that conception of God flows everything in your life of any consequence whatsoever. A low view of God has a lasting effect upon the believer. If our view of God is high, then our lives will reflect that reality with our repentance and with our good works and through honoring and serving the Lord. My question for you this morning is this. What comes into your mind when you think about God? When you think of God, do you have a small view of God that kind of looks like yourself? Or is your view of God like this one revealed here in Isaiah chapter 6? Holy, majestic, high, above all His creation. Or is He something less? 
you will not serve anyone less than a king. One way to test how um, to test our view of God is how do you look at the scriptures? Do you tend to flock towards the scriptures that are seemingly man-centered that only benefit you? Let me give you an example. There are many people who want to quote Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31. Uh, the Lord who will lift us up on wings like eagles. And they hear this voice and it's encouraging for them. And that's all they do with that text. But what are the verses before Isaiah chapter 40? Well, if you have time, maybe afterwards, go look at Isaiah chapter 40. And what you will see is another text like Isaiah 6, where the majesty and the huge, vast nature of God is revealed. It makes verse 31 so much more meaningful. Who is it that's going to mount us up on wings like eagles? It is a majestic king. It is a majestic king who is kind and tender to us. Without this full picture, we miss out on who God is. My second question for you is this. Have you compared yourself to God to measure your sin? In this text, we see Isaiah taking in who God is. We see him uh, observing his holiness. And we see Isaiah looking at himself and realizing he is not so holy. In a similar fashion, our standard of holiness is to be of God alone. What do I mean by that? Don't compare yourself to other people for your continued growth and sanctification in the Christian life. Paul exhorts us to, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We're commanded to observe others, but we should never let that be a substitute for comparing ourselves to God's standard. How easy it would be to allow our faith to be shipwrecked by another believer we've placed all our stock in who will fail us, who will sin, and will let us down. Let us compare ourselves to God alone, just as Isaiah did. Finally, I want to point out the dynamic of this entire text. Like I mentioned earlier, I truly feel that Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8 is taken in isolation as a call for missions. I'm not here to dispute that we need more missionaries, and I pray that the Lord would even from us here raise up missionaries, raise up preachers and teachers who will go out into the world and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, no matter how dangerous it is. We need these people. But I don't think that's what this text is talking about. I want to point out the dynamic of listening to the voice of the shepherd. The willingness to go and preach that Isaiah received was a result of listening to the voice of God directly. He heard this voice and he went. And this was God's revealed word to him. It was direct and he obeyed it. Likewise, a Christian today is someone who listens to the voice of the shepherd. As Dr. Holmes read for us this morning in John chapter 10, the Christian hears the voice of God, the sheep hear his voice, and he follows them. My question for you is this, do you follow the voice of God? I know some of you funny ones out there are thinking, well, I've never had a visible, audible vision from God. Well, I know. And if you told me you had that, I would probably doubt the veracity of it. But we have God's word right here. 
He has given us His Word. The main thing you have to ask yourself is this. Do I listen to what God commands in His Word? He has commanded all of us. He has taught all of us through His Word. Are we willing to listen to it and obey it? Do you follow after the voice of the shepherd? It may be that following Jesus Christ for you is not that glamorous. Uh, Preachers and ministers today, um, are you looking for that supposed rock star position in the pastorate? I hear so many people, they want to have a big church. They aspire to climb the ladder, so to speak. Or are you just being obedient to the voice of God where you are right now? Take the demoniac in Luke chapter 8, for example. He has these demons within him, and he's living in the tombs with dead people. He's cutting himself, and he's crazy. Jesus heals this man, and he asks the Lord, he says, let me go with you. Let me be where you are, and let me do these great things with you. Just imagine if this demoniac would have went with the Lord. He would have done so many great things. This would be recorded everywhere in Scripture. A demoniac, a former demoniac, is ministering with the Lord. But no. He says, go back into your town and go tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and he went and told what great things God had done for him. He probably just got a mundane job He probably settled down with his family. He didn't do a whole lot. He was faithful and he listened to the voice and he followed. As we see in this text this morning in verses 9 through 13, if you go on a little after, uh, we see that God has commanded Isaiah to have what many people today would call a worthless ministry. Well, if they're not going to listen to you, why would you go? If they're not going to be changed, why would you preach to them? We see that God is more concerned with obedience than results. God is not concerned with your numbers. One of my dear friends, Kevin Clayton, once told me this as a warning whenever I was accepted uh, to come to school here. He said, Stuart, there are many people, it is so easy within seminary to substitute knowing God with academic knowledge. It is easy to uh, treat the sacred and holy things of God as common. I tell you this this morning. Don't treat these sacred things as common. We have these classes. We're confronted with the things of God daily. Don't allow them to become common. Don't allow an academic exercise to substitute listening to the voice of the shepherd and obeying him. Do you know the voice of the shepherd? Have you listened to his call in your life? God's called everyone. He has a general call for everyone. And it is this. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. I can't take for granted that everyone here is a Christian. I once heard someone say that hell is going to be full of a lot of preachers. And so I ask you this. Examine your hearts this morning. Have you truly listened to the voice of the shepherd? 
Have you listened to his call to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ alone? Have you obeyed his voice? Let's pray. Oh, holy shepherd king, we come before you this morning humbly and with nothing to bring you. So, Father, as little children, we come to you, praising your holy name, that you would even turn your face toward us. Oh, Lord, that we would listen to the voice of the shepherd, that we would be obedient to you, that we would not scorn your word, that we wouldn't treat your word as a mere academic exercise, that we wouldn't let pure exegesis take the place of true experiential knowledge of you. Lord, you said that eternal life is knowing you and whom you sent, Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh God, that we would all know you experientially and not just merely in our heads. That we would truly hear the voice of the shepherd and that we would follow. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.